Now turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to just read the postscript again of Peter's first letter. So 1 Peter chapter 5. We're reading from the verse 12. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Let us hear the word of God together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, for in ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marketh my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. We pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this short reading of his own infallible and inerrant word. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12 and my theme today is understanding the true grace of God. Now 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 12 to 14 forms the conclusion to Peter's whole letter to the churches that he was writing to in five provinces. In these verses, he mentions a man with them by the name of Silvanus. Silvanus was really Paul's manuscript writer or, or Paul's secretary. Uh, uh, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, dictated this letter to Silvanus, who carefully wrote it down. Silvanus, as I've said, was a kind of a secretary. And then according to verse 12, um, Peter uh, himself took the pen from Silvanus and he wrote a, a postscript, a, a, an inspired postscript. And when he had finished it, he um, sent it out uh, to the five churches in the five provinces that he's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, by the hand of Silvanus. And we've already preached on Silvanus. He was a faithful brother. Now, why did Peter write this letter? And the answer is simply to encourage and exhort God's people who were suffering great fiery persecution and hardship simply for being a Christian. And if you look at verse 12, you, you've got besides the mentioning of Silvanus, a faithful brother who was with him in the role of a, a, a faithful secretary. And remember the Latin form of Silvanus, uh, the, the Greek form of that name is Silas. And in verse 12, you've got Peter's purpose or aim for writing. And it only comes to us at the end of the book. Look at the words, at what it says there. As I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Peter is telling us that, that this is a brief letter. And it's written with one overall aim. 
And it was to show the believers in his day who were suffering hardship, persecution and much opposition what the true grace of God is and exhort them to continue to stand firm in it. Now, how could you get a sense of a survey of the whole book of First Peter? How could it be summarized to what it's all about? Well, the answer to that question is here right at the end. Peter is exhorting and testifying that what he has written is the true grace of God that believers are called to stand firm in. Now, I've told you before that there's eight references to the word grace in Peter's first letter. It's mentioned eight times. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 3 and 7. Chapter 4 and 10. Chapter 5 and 5. Chapter 5 and 10. And chapter 5 and 12. And eight, remember, is the number of a new beginning. And in this handwritten postscript, he mentions it for the last time. And what he's saying is this, what I have written to you is the true grace of God in contrast to false grace. Everything that's contrary to what I have written is not the true grace of God. It's a false grace. It is a cheap grace. And Peter wanted them to understand what grace is. And grace is not just a girl's name. Young people, we've told you that. Uh, Grace is not just a little prayer that you say of thanks at the beginning of a meal. Uh, Grace is much more than an attractive quality that one can possess. In spiritual terms, it's much more than God's riches at Christ's expense. Remember the definition we've given you. It's undeserved, unmerited favor shown to the ill-deserving and, in fact, hell-deserving sinners. Now think of the words. As I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting, and testifying. Those are strong words. And what's he exhorting them about? What's he testifying to? And the answer is this, that what he has written is the true grace of God. This letter could be divided into three parts. You've got the foundation of doctrine of salvation, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 10. And then you've got the fundamental duty of service, chapter 2, 11 to 5, 11. The doctrine and the duty go hand in hand. The two go together. They cannot be divorced. Our doctrine must determine our duty. Our duty is a result of what we believe. And all he has said by way of exhortation, encouragement, has been to set forth the true grace of God. And anything contrary to that true grace of God, Peter believes, is a lie. And we need to understand and we need to grasp, if we can, something of the true grace of God. And that's what I want us to try and do this morning. Three simple things. First of all, understand that salvation is by the grace of God. You see, the word grace opens up the door into many concepts or many facets of grace. And of course, the 
doctrine of the grace of God is a wonderful study in the Bible. And um, as you think of uh, the doctrine of the grace of God in the Bible, you've got to think, first of all, um, of saving grace. When we ask the question, what is salvation? How, how do we understand that? Remember Jonah said, Jonah 2 and 9, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation's all of God from start to finish. And when you read in your Bible, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then Peter's argument from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10 is all about setting forth the basic doctrine of salvation. You see, young people, there is such a thing as the saving grace of God. And if we could summarize what the Bible teaches about salvation, we could put it in a sentence that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's exactly what Martin Luther rediscovered 500 years ago and propagated in Wittenberg and reaching around the world. You see, no man deserves to be saved. No matter who he is, no matter what he does, should he be a prince or a king on the throne or the poorest man in the street, no man merits the undeserved kindness or favour of God. All of us are born sinners by nature and practice. The psalmist could say, Psalm 51 and verse 4, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So no man deserves to be saved. And more than that, all men deserve to be damned in hell. And the fact that God saves anyone is down to God's sovereign free grace. And that's what Peter has been teaching from chapter 1, verse 1, right through to chapter 2, verse 10. I'm using an outline that was first preached by Dr. Alan Kearns. I've taken the outline, I've made my own little meat-to-the-bone structure. But look with me at chapter 1 for a moment in verse 2 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He lacked according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We'd pause there. There's the plan of salvation. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect means chosen. Now I'm not going to expound this verse. I've already done that in a previous time. But I just want to add this thought that God the Father... God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, in the council chambers of eternity, as they entered into the covenant or agreement of redemption, God the Father planned the great plan of salvation by choosing a great multitude of masses of men and women, all kinds of sinners, and he gave them to Christ. And that's what Peter's teaching here. I want you to think, secondly, of the power of salvation. It says, through sanctification of the Spirit, by being set apart by the Spirit. 
And, and that's what the word uh, sanctification means, at least initially. It, it focuses to think of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit regenerating the soul unto God. You think of Ephesians 2 and 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The doctrine of regeneration is here. The new birth is here. Sinners being made alive to God. Remember the Lord Jesus said, um, John chapter 3 and verse 7, you must be born again. Born of the Spirit. You see, sinners are spiritually dead. All kinds of sinners. From the king on the throne to the poorest in the street. And they they need a a spiritual resurrection. And how is that resurrection possible? They're dead. And the answer is the work of the Spirit. They're they're awakened (coughs) to new life. They're made alive unto God. They discover they're sinners. And that God is holy and righteous and just. And that God hates sin. And God has provided a remedy for sinners. It's all through the work of the Spirit. (coughs) Notice also in verse 2, the purchase of salvation. He says, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to say this morning that no man is preaching the gospel who denies God chooses sinners to come to Christ, who denies that God calls sinners to come to Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit, And who also denies that God cleanses sinners in the blood of Christ. No preacher is preaching the gospel who doesn't preach about the blood of Christ. Over there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the apostle Paul said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. The church of Jesus Christ was purchased with the blood of God's dear son. And over there in the book of Revelation, it becomes abundantly clear in Revelation chapter 1 and in the verse 5, uh, when John was inspired to write and hath made his kings and priests unto God and his father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And we should focus, when we think about salvation, God has planned it in eternity past, in the council chambers of eternity. And that power of salvation is God's power to awaken sinners. And think of the purchase of salvation. We should be focusing on the sacrifice of the bleeding lamb. And thousands today of so-called Protestants across the world, if we asked a basic fundamental question, how do you become a Christian? How do you get saved? Uh, How can you know that you're a true Protestant? And here's the answer. Well, I go to church. Mention the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Church of Ireland, the Baptist, the the Elam Pentecostal. 
They might even talk about their church attendance and, and their rites and ceremonies and claim that they were baptized as infants and they have been confirmed into the church and they have been catechized. And the, the thought is, well, look at me. I, I, I accomplished many good deeds in my lifetime. I give my money to help the poor. I give to missions in Africa, you know, and help the starving there. I'm a kind person. I'm honest. I'm trustworthy. I try to do good to others. I'm a hard worker. And I, I, I think, well, listen to what is being said within the Protestant community, so-called. And then think of the little children's chorus. What can wash away my sins? And here's the answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the vast majority of Protestants in Northern Ireland who are sitting in church this morning do not hear of the need to be washed by faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Many Protestants and preachers alike no longer believe that Jesus Christ is the only saviour of sinners. And yet the Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Then the Lord Jesus say in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Not I am one way. Not I'm the way for some, but not others. It was not, I'm the, the, the way for, for most men. No, there is no other way. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And really what many Protestants believe in their heart, we, we could call them Roman Catholic Protestants, for that matter, because in their mind they're saying... I'm going to purchase eternal life and salvation. I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to get to home with God by the efforts of myself, by the works of my hands. But I, I'm saying this morning, that's not what the Bible teaches young people. That's a lie. That, that's a falsehood. That runs contrary to what the, the, the apostle Peter understood to be part of the true grace of God. And what we need in our day is a rediscovery of the gospel. We have lost sight of the gospel. The gospel, as we're telling you, has at its heart a plan that's all of God. And the gospel has God has power to resurrect the spiritual dead. And at the heart of the gospel is this purchase of salvation by the blood of Christ. The gospel's all of God. That's a true. A truth. The gospel is the only spiritual hope for all of the people of God. And the gospel is all that God has revealed and proclaimed to his people. And what is the gospel? Very quickly, I remind you, it's a message from God. I have a message from God for you. There's the authority of the gospel. It's a message that proclaims God's remedy for the problem of human sinfulness. There's the doctrine of human sin. It's a message that centers in the person and work of Christ. And oh, I had time to open that up. It's a message that calls for repentance. The sinner summons to repent before God and to exercise faith in Christ. 
It's a message that um, God calls for perseverance in a life of holiness, in, in a life of obedience, in a life of faithful, loving service. It's a message that delivers us from hell and eternal punishment due to sin. And it's a message that promises heaven and a life of eternal bliss for all who die in Christ. And that's the gospel. And at the heart of that is the purchase of salvation. Notice very quickly, and I I will be quick. Look with me at verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father for Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy (coughs) hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Here's the provision of the gospel. What does God do for us? God gives us a living hope. There's nothing for us spiritually except what there is for us in Christ. All that we have is in Christ. Our, our, our life is in Christ. The, the mercy of God. The, the grace of God. Help and hope. Heaven and holiness. It, it's all in Christ. I want you to think also of the proof of salvation. It says in verse 3, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As I said last Sunday being Easter Sunday. How do we know it's all true? Here's the answer. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God raised Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. Literally and tangibly, physically. That's not a theory. That's not a philosophy of man. It's not a lie, an invention of men, even good men. And the proof that it's not a lie is the empty tomb. Remember what we said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 6. He is not here. He is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. And the empty tomb is proof that the gospel is real. And it's the most real thing in the world. Think also of the promise of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 4. God has promised to all who trust Christ a great, wonderful inheritance. Maybe you're born in a lowly station in life like I have been. I come from a a farm labouring background. Maybe you're here as a factory worker. You feel I'm just a labourer on a building site. I'm semi-skilled, low wages and hard work. Wasn't born like Prince William or Prince Harry was born, maybe with a, a silver spoon in their mouth. Haven't much of this world's good. You find life is hard. You find it difficult. But I've got a message for you. If you're in Christ, no matter who you are, no matter your station in life, God has an inheritance for you, and it's in Christ. And that inheritance is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fadeth not away. And it's reserved in heaven for you. There's the promise of salvation. Think of the preservation of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 5. Kept by the power of God through faith. Unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. See, isn't it wonderful that those whom God saves, God also keeps. The Lord Jesus said, I give unto my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. If you're saved and in Christ, you're in the hand of God. And there's no safer place for you to be. You can never be pushed out of the hand, thrown out, fall out, kicked out, or anything like that. Now, here's a question this morning. Are you in Christ? Are you a true believer? Do you know anything of this great plan of salvation? God has chosen me from eternity past. 
in Christ. And God in time has called me by the effectual call of God in the gospel through the work of the Spirit. Do you know this morning that you've been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's biblical language. Haven't I already quoted to you from uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5? Remember what we said there? Tremendous words at the end. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, we need to understand the gospel. And I want to say, we as free Presbyterians need to understand the gospel better. And all the gospel message is connected to the grace of God. And I'm only dealing with one branch, saving grace. We could talk this morning about sovereign grace. We could talk about sanctifying grace. The grace that saves us also sanctifies us, sets us apart to persevere in holiness. There's a desire and an aspiration to live a holy life. We'll never be sinless, but we strive towards being holy. We live to please God. What about serving grace? And what about suffering grace? Remember Peter here speaking, writing to the Suffering people of God in his day and generation. We've already seen that. First Peter chapter 1 verses 6 right through 7 and 8. Remember they were suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. The emperor on the throne was Nero. Nero was one of the great persecutors of God's people in the, the history of the world. And do you know that on one occasion he held a party young people. It was in the palace gardens and he decided, well, I need lights. And, of course, they couldn't just go and switch on the electric lights. They didn't light any uh, oil-fired um, burners either. They didn't have any gas. So what he did was he, he rounded up hundreds of Christians. And they tarred them with tar. And they nailed them to crosses or hung them to crosses. And they set them alight as the people walked past, all to light up his garden. Days of terrible persecution. And Peter wants them to see their suffering in the light of the Savior's suffering. So there's suffering grace for them. And, and they told them Christ is our example. He's our pattern. First Peter 2 and 21 right through to 24. And we focus on Christ once and for all, sacrifice for sin and there's, you see, salvation is by the grace of God. Now notice very quickly and secondly, stimulation is also by the grace of God. If you go back to 1 Peter, he says um, that this is the true grace of God, wherein ye stand. Now, let me just tell you three things. Every true believer has a personal standing before God in Christ. Every true believer is on a true foundation that can't be moved or destroyed. If you're in Christ, then in Christ, you're just as acceptable to God this morning as if you were Jesus Christ himself in person, as if you were God's only begotten son. Now, God is only one only begotten son, but he has thousands of adopted sons and daughters and he accepts and treats those adopted sons and daughters 
in Christ. And in Christ, you're just acceptable to God as Christ was and is. And God treats his people in Christ as he treats his only begotten son. And when Peter says, for in ye stand, he's thinking of that personal standing before God that they have in Christ. Secondly, every true believer has a practical standing. He cannot and will not give up the gospel. Now, now think of the martyrs. How did they die? Think of these Christians in Nero's garden who were used as human torches. How could they face such suffering? Think of the hardship that these Christians were facing in Peter's day. Possessions confiscated. Homes repossessed. Put into prison. Tortured. Thousands of them put to death. We were thinking of the 50,000 Jews that were uh, murdered in uh, Buchenwald in Germany. We visited that concentration camp. And, And I was thinking to myself, how was that possible? How did they not give up the gospel? How did they not deny Christ and denounce the faith? And the answer to that is the grace of God. God gave them grace to stand. It was the grace of God that caused them to refuse to recant or budge an inch. And it was the same grace that sustained Martin Luther when he stood at the Diet on the 18th of April in 1521. I'm amazed, of course, when you have a preacher who claims to be a preacher of the gospel. He was born in the Protestant church. Said he believed the Protestant doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that individual then converts to become a Roman Catholic. How's that possible? I want to say this morning, my answer to that would be this. That he was never truly saved. He was never truly born again of the Spirit. And the same is true not only for pastors, but true for people who convert to Roman Catholicism. They, they have to be viewed that they were never truly born again believers in the first place. Because if you're truly born of the Spirit, genuinely saved, then you cannot and you never will give up or deny the gospel. Yes, you'll feel. Yes, you'll fall. Yes, you'll have sins and you'll be full of shortcomings. You might even deny Christ for a period. You might even live in a backslidden state for a period. But you'll never give up the gospel. You see, we stand in a hostile world. The gospel today, of course, has many, many enemies. You think of the enemy of humanism. Humanism is dominated by a thinking of self. It's me first. It leaves out God. It seeks to live independent of God. Think of hedonism in this pleasure-crazy age. Think of ecumenism. Let's all get together. That's a call that's going out in the 500th anniversary year. Doesn't matter what you believe. (coughs) Doctrine's divisive, you know. Better have nothing to do with doctrine. Think of liberalism. Denying many cardinal doctrines of the, the Protestant faith. Think of persecution and opposition as an enemy in itself. Think of Romanism. With its dogmas and doctrines that hasn't changed from the days of Luther. In fact, they've added to them. Doctrine of papal infallibility. The doctrine of co-redemptrix of Mary. You can still buy indulgences today. 
Still around, you see. And here's the tense of the verb that Peter wants to get over. He says, wherein you stand. And I'll explain it in the Greek New Testament. In which you have stood, not quitting. In which you continue to stand. You see, he's saying you have stood in the midst of fiery persecution. Homes repossessed, imprisoned, tortured. Many of your loved ones put to death. You wives have seen husbands murdered. You, you husbands have seen your wives murdered. And yet you have stood and you still stand to this day. And you're going to continue to stand. And it's by the grace of God. And I want to say this morning that if we're going to stand for Jesus Christ and the gospel and we need to stand firm today in our pulpits and if we're going to stand in the pew and not be afraid and say the gospel's an exclusive message it is to say the gospel in many ears and eyes is a bigoted intolerant kind of message glory to God it's God's message let's see to it that we stand by the grace of God And we see to it that there's a practical outworking of the gospel in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in society. Let me say thirdly and finish. Submission is by the grace of God. Think of this word as we finish exhorting. That's a strong word. What was he exhorting them to do in the letter? It was a call to right believing and right living. And the two go together. You see, where you have one, you have the other. You, they can't be divorced. <laughs> Many have no time for the great doctrines of the word of God. And you've got to think of liberalism, the inroads of apostasy. You think of ecumenism, doctrine divides. Let's focus on what unites us, not on what divides us. You hear the argument, but, but doctrine deadens our zeal, zeal for God. You know what? doesn't it stimulates us it brings us to the place of submitting to god because doctrine and duty go together if we believe right we will live right and if you live right you will also believe right right believing results in right living right living is rooted in right believing and and peter just doesn't say i'm exhorting you which is a very strong word and, and he calls for right believing and right living Remember, there's a doctrinal aspect, a, a dutiful aspect. And then he adds this word, testifying. I, I, I like that word because that word testifying ties into the word Protestant. I'll explain that to you sometime. You see, he can't exhort them, call them to right living without testifying, without making a statement. And what is a statement? This is the true grace of God. He wants them to understand the gospel of the grace of God. And oh, that we could begin to grasp it in our free Presbyterian churches. And you know, if we begin to grasp and understand the gospel, we have a desire to learn the gospel. We we want to know it, not only theoretically, but experimentally. It'll become part and parcel of us. It will influence us. It will affect us in our choices, in our lifestyle. You see, there's not only a stimulation in our homes and in the workplace and in the church to to live to the glory and honour of God. We will submit to that. We'll give ourselves to it. 
And if you say this morning, I'm a Christian, I, I'm in Christ, then that will affect our thinking and attendance at the house of God. That, that will affect our thinking when it comes to the prayer meeting night. It'll not be only, it's only the prayer meeting. It's the worst attended meeting in the church, which is very sad. How many of us really pray at home if we're not at the prayer meeting? It, it'll come to the same thinking to the Bible study. We, we want time with God. We, we want time with the God of the word. If this is the true grace of God, wherein we stand, then, then we need to know it. Not theoretically, yes, but also experimentally. What we learn by way of an intellectual thing has to affect us in our heart. Think of what I told the children about Oliver. He has all the intellectual truth. And he can articulate it very well. But it's not experimental to him. He knows it theoretically, but he has never actually trusted Christ. He hasn't submitted himself to Christ by an act of faith. And once you do that, then your belief results in right living before God. May the Lord take these few truths and bless them to you this morning. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being so patient. Could I encourage you as well to pray for all who listen on the internet? I want to thank our internet listeners for listening.